September 11, 2001 is a date that will forever weigh heavily on the minds of Americans. It's been a decade since the terror attacks on that day, and in these 10 years, a lot of us see the world differently. For one thing, we're more vigilant in the subway and at the airport. If you see something, say something. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The absence of the Twin Towers is the most visible reminder of what happened a decade ago tomorrow. Singer-songwriter Juliana Hatfield penned a song about the void in the Manhattan skyline. I reached out to her at her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to talk about it. Juliana Hatfield, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for having me on your program. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? I was in my apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And do you remember that day very vividly? Oh, yes, I do. I I got a phone call from my boyfriend at the time who was living in Birmingham, Alabama. He just said, turn on your TV. And I turned on the TV, and there were pictures of the first tower that had been hit. And we were both sort of just like, whoa. How soon after the attacks did you write Hole in the Sky? It was probably at least a year later. I was afraid to fly for many years after that, like like a lot of people. You know, I had a kind of irrational fears for a long time after that. Like, I didn't want to go to, I didn't go to New York City for years after that. I didn't fly for years after that. But my mother had gone to New York City sometime in the year after the attacks happened, and she had gone down to the Ground Zero site, just, you know, as people did, to look at it and to contemplate, you know. I asked her, you know, what what was it like going down there? You know, I I don't think I could do it. I don't want to go down. It would be too sad. And she, she just said, it was like there was just a big hole in the sky. There's a hole in the sky I stood and stared I feel it inside What isn't there And I thought that was so profound and kind of moving. But that was my mother's take on the whole thing. There's a line in the song that reads, Your power and your money, it won't help you now. Was that directed at anyone in particular? No, I guess not. I mean, when I'm writing, it's, I'm always sort of semi-unconscious, and I'm just sort of, things are just coming out of me, and I can't remember anything, anyone in particular that I was thinking about when I wrote those lines. Maybe I was thinking of just politicians in general, and world leaders. The powerful and the elite, you know, they, they couldn't stop us from happening. There are bigger things that can crush us, and we always need to be mindful of this and not, not be too ambitious and too greedy. You also wrote in that song, Everybody Look Up With Funeral Eyes, Wish You Had One More Chance To Say Goodbye. Funeral eyes, you know, I never heard that phrase before, but I've certainly seen those eyes before. Well, you know, I think that I heard 
never read the word funeralize, one word. Like, you're funeralizing this event. You know what I mean? Fun- I don't know if that's a real world, e- real word either, funeralize, like funeral I-Z-E. I don't remember the context, but I think that was originally what I had heard, and I took that, and I, I heard it differently, and I heard, oh, funeral eyes. And it's sort of like the eyes of New York at that time, and the eyes of the country, and it was just such, such, a, such a horrifying time, but also just so sad, so profoundly sad. And I think my mother saying that, you know, there was a big hole in the sky, I think that was like, you go down to the site and you have funeral eyes because there's a sense of loss, you know. Juliana Hatfield, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks. Museums throughout the nation are featuring exhibits to mark the 10-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And Long Island City, Queens' MoMA PS1 is reflecting upon the tragedy with an exhibit simply titled September 11. Curator Peter Ely says the exhibit brings together nearly 70 works of art, mostly made prior to 9-11, to reflect upon how the attacks have altered the ways in which we see and experience the world. About two-thirds of the, of the work in the show uh, was made before the attacks. Uh, in some cases in 2001, but earlier in the year. The earliest piece in the show is a, a Diane Arbus photograph from the late 50s, actually, of a newspaper blowing across an intersection uh, in New York at night. And there's something about that, along with a lot of other art that I realized after 9-11, albeit made before the fact, that evoked um, aspects of my own experience of the event or managed to sort of change its meaning um, and the kind of experience we could have with it in the wake of, of, of the attacks themselves. Did you go into this knowing that you were going to use artwork that was created prior to the attacks, or did it just fall into place that way? That's a good question. I guess um, the f- uh, around the time of the first anniversary, uh, an artist named Eric Fischel made a work that uh, was a bronze sculpture of a, it's called Tumbling Woman, of a, essentially a woman upended almost as if she was in midair, which he meant in homage to in, in commemoration of all the, the people who had died in the tower, specifically calling forth the images of people uh, jumping or falling out of, out of the burning buildings, which were so horrific for all of us to look at. And when he showed it at Rockefeller Center, it really provoked a, an incredible amount of outrage. And the work was withdrawn from view relatively quickly. And and as a curator, that was very interesting to me because it pointed to the limits of what of what is seeable um, in the wake of, of a traumatic event like this. And so when a year later, Ellsworth Kelly actually um, sent the architecture critic at the Times a collage he had made for what should happen at Ground Zero, which in fact was just, uh, he covered over the site of trauma essentially with a little green trapezoid that he glued on top of a picture of the site. These were two opposite ways of thinking about it. One, uh, looking directly at the event, um, which seemed to be deeply problematic, um, at least from the perspective of the general public. And then this other perspective, which was in a sense covering it with a fig leaf where we could actually look at, at the thing while also looking away from it. And it was that latter, um, that latter impulse that motivated me as a curator to start thinking about how art, and specifically an exhibition, could engage differently with, uh, with a subject that remains incredibly difficult to talk about in public. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I'm sure one can question how does a photograph of a newspaper blowing across a New York intersection at night say anything about the 9-11 attacks? And I don't know that it does necessarily. I mean, part of the interesting thing for me about organizing this show is to see what resonates when you present it within um, a frame of something like 9-11. That's why the show is simply titled September 11, in part to beg this question. I think for many people... Certainly for me, if you saw two glasses on a bar, you know, for, I don't know, six months or a year after the attacks, immediately they connoted the towers. And there are a range of ways in which I think 9-11 continues to have uh, an impact on how we experience the world. And certainly the the job of a curator is to present a context for or uh, a way of looking at, to suggest a way of looking at a lot of disparate material. 9-11 9-11 is something that's had an enormous, enormous cultural impact, I think, on things that we're only now beginning to speak about. And so to be able to test those things out here was was part of my interest. This exhibit, September 11, includes a number of works that explore commemoration and its rituals. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Give us some examples. There's a work from around 1980 by an American artist who's been living in England for a number of years named, Sus- uh, named Susan Hiller. And her piece actually is a a series of photographs that she took of a Victorian-era monument in a London park to people who died saving others. Um, They're all ceramic plaques um, with kind of heartbreaking, brief little um, stories about the heroicism of these everyday people. And that appealed to me in this context somehow. There's also uh, a work by a Swiss artist named Thomas Hirshhorn which is from a a series of street altars that he made in the late 90s to artists and writers uh, who had inspired him. And we're installing it on a street corner about a block from the museum. And when you walk by, it's not identified as art. And so what's interesting is, uh, in this case, the shrine is to the Dutch abstract, pioneering abstract painter Piet Mondrian, who died in New York City uh, just before the end of World War II. But people who don't know who Mondrian is or realize necessarily that he died decades ago may be moved, as seems to be the case when the piece has been shown previously, to participate in kind of the public rituals of of mourning and commemoration that happen when someone is uh, hit by a car, for example, where these kinds of street shrines crop up. And so often people actually contribute flowers or candles um, to these kinds of things and set against the backdrop of the 10th anniversary, where I, I suspect we'll see again the kinds of spontaneous public commemorations like we saw at Union Square in the weeks following, I I thought it would be interesting to have something that exists really sort of on the same terms with with those kinds of public expressions. So this exhibit is not confined to the museum itself. It's out there in the community. This piece is is the one piece that really goes outside the the frame of the museum, but I thought it was important to do that. Partially, I, I, I guess I used to work in public art, and it's always been very close to my heart. And I think there's a very different way that you can engage with the public when you're not within the confines and the sort of strictures of behavior that museums um, elicit. And in this case, because I was engaging in such, because I am engaging with uh, such a public topic, it felt really important to me to be able to do that here. Now, this exhibit actually runs for quite some time, right? It opens on the 11th itself? It does. And it, it actually runs through January 9th. And so I think it'll be very interesting, at, at least for me and I hope for others, to see how the exhibition itself and our experience of it changes as we 
get further away from the 10th anniversary, which I think really will represent a certain kind of closure for us, um, particularly those of us in New York. Uh, the opening of the memorial and I think the the coincidence of bin Laden's assassination, I think all of these combine in some way to mark the end of a, of a certain kind of uh, way of experiencing 9-11. And, and I think by the time the show closes, it'll be a different thing culturally for us. Peter Ely, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Peter Ely is the curator of an exhibit called September 11 at MoMA PS1 in Long Island City, Queens. The exhibit opens tomorrow and runs through January 9th. After the 9-11 attacks 10 years ago, a lot of people turned to the arts to make themselves feel better. Some went to museums, while others created their own pieces. The group Art for Healing NYC is out with a new book that includes the artistic responses of New York and New Jersey residents to the tragedy of 9-11. Lauren Ellis is the group's executive director. Lauren, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, tell me about your organization. Yes, Art for Healing was um, ironically born May 2000 before 9-11. So it's an organization that bridges the gap to help visual and performing artists to share the healing power of their work with the public. Clearly, the arts became that much more important after 9-11. Yes, um, art has always been healing. I mean, we didn't make up the term. Um, But after 9-11, there was a record attendance to museums and galleries. So Everyone goes to the arts to heal, either consciously or subconsciously. I mean, I meet people all the time, and they say, well, I don't really get involved in the arts. I said, do you listen to the radio? Oh, yeah, I can't live without my music. Well, that's art. There you go. Well, you are now out with a book, a book that is filled with contributions from New Yorkers, their reaction to the 9-11 attacks, their artistic reaction to the 9-11 attacks, right? Yes, yes, that's a good point. Um, It's not political or vulgar. We don't take political or vulgar issues. It's just about, it's an interactive peace and courage book because interactive meaning it has blank pages in the back so everyone can add their story or their art or whatever they want. It's a collaboration of um, representing all the boroughs, plus New Jersey and Long Island. Now, you referenced music there a moment ago. This book includes lyrics, right? Lyrics, photography, art, collage, digital art, poetry, prose, and lyrics. What are among some of the songs that you find particularly striking? Well, our signature song, um, written by Carolyn Black, and the lyrics by Eric Sakar is amazing. It's called Empty Skyline, and that's our kind of signature song that we use for our video on our website. So if you want to see um, the actual five-minute video, you can go to our website um, and see that. I saw a shadow amidst the empty skyline There's another song I know that's in the book. It's called Center of the World. Yes, Center of the World. Yes, that's by Walter Moore. And that's a beautiful song as well. It's a very peaceful, soft, um, light song. It's a beautiful song. His lyrics are in the book as well. I can still see you Standing so tall Out there in the wild blue Unbound But I cannot feel you What about the song Shadows? Shadows, yes. That's by um, Kevin Jones. Um, It's a beautiful song, too. It talks about the shadows of the World Trade Center and how they used to be shadows. It's just um, very touching. And my work I submitted to the book is actually visual art. I do photographic painting. And that had a shadow in it, so it's next to his, coincidentally, because it works. And I gave him permission to use my artwork for his um, CD cover. 
used to be shadows here This time of day Used to imagine here That nothing would stand in our way There was no exposure here We thought shadows could shade the absurd Now we're the shadows here As the sun finds its way to the streets of our city, our country, our world. We support artists any way we can. The other thing we do in the book to support the artists is each artist that has a website, we list their website. So if anyone's interested in um, looking through the book and seeing a particular artist, they can go to their website. It's kind of another way to promote artists. We don't represent artists, but we try to help them in different ways. How many submissions did you get for this book? Well, it's interesting. We got probably only, I would say, maybe a third we didn't use. And they were from international as well and other parts of the country. Um, but, you know, we said it, that's where we got the interactive idea because it's about people that were here, you know, at, at that day, a decade later. We don't like to use the word anniversary. We say a decade later. And so we're lucky that we were blessed with a few we had to reject because they were political. Well, here we are a decade later, and there's a whole group of people who were too young on 9-11 to understand what happened. There are people who were born on 9-11 who are now 10 years old. How do you think this book could help explain what happened on that day to that group of people? That's a hard question to answer, but I think it's very important for young people to be aware of 9-11 because... I wrote a poem about it that's not in the book because we all had one submission. I wrote poetry as well. But one of the poems I wrote talks about it'll always be zone zero. It'll always be zone orange and it will always be like a cancer in our country and we'll just be cutting it out and it'll always be here. So I think young people really need to be aware that we're an international country more so than when I grew up. It was more you know, more reserved. Now it's becoming much more international with the internet, with um, mainly the internet, you know, and YouTube and, you know, young people with the computers. And so I think it's very important for young people to be aware of this book. And the book is available through your website? Through our website, through Amazon.com, through artforhealingnyc.org, artforhealingnyc.org, through Amazon.com and through Barnes & Noble. All right, Lauren, anything else you'd like to add? I just wish and pray everyone has a safe um, 9-11 and says a prayer for someone that hopefully is with them or is in a safe place. Lauren Ellis, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting us. I was cheated on by fate, cheated out of the love of a lifetime, you're in heaven's gate, and I've you're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. A lot of heroes emerged from the 9-11 attacks. Among them, the search and rescue dogs that worked in the rubble of the World Trade Center. A new book by photographer Charlotte Dumas tells the stories and features the portraits of a number of those dogs. Charlotte, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, uh, sure. The book is called Retrieved. How did this project come about for you? I have been photographing animals since I started back in 2001, and um, uh, dogs have been, a, have been a, a main subject of mine as well, and uh, mostly dogs that are like uh, working dogs. So um, I uh, just finished a project in Italy, which was a commission to photograph working dogs in uh, Liguria, which is a, a region in Italy. 
And uh, after that, I was focusing on my one of my own projects again about military dogs. And, and, and in my research, I find out uh, more about military dogs and where they're based and how to get in touch with them, basically. I came across... Uh, yeah, the dogs of 9/11, and basically automatically because I, I like remembered all the images of the dogs back then, 10 years ago, and all of a sudden just wondered what would ha- what has happened with the dogs now. So uh, that was kind of like my first impulse, and then I was because I was already doing research for the military dogs, I just kind of like expanded my search, and then found out actually that through FEMA, that all the dogs for the first responders were deployed through FEMA and um, got in touch with the, with the manager of the canine group, and uh, she helped me along. So that's kind of like how it got rolling. How did working with these dogs compare to working with the other dogs that you worked with in the other projects? This particular project may have been like the most intense for me up till now because it's so... Uh, um, it's it's so such a defined subject because it, it was re- was really about the dogs to find them the ones that were still alive and there were only fifteen alive still from those group of the first responders. So fifteen of how many again? Uh, close to a hundred. Wow. They were deployed like within the first weeks after like from starting directly on the eleventh to you know three four weeks after that. And are they no longer around because they were older dogs? Uh, yeah, m- mostly most of the dogs just died out of uh, old age, and um, uh, so yeah, and, and it was ten years ago, and like to, most of the dogs then had to be certified also. So, and in order to be certified, they they would be like at least two years of age. So, all the dogs now would have been like twelve and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, because we which, hear sorry, because we hear yeah. so much about nine eleven related illnesses. I would wonder whether any of these dogs succumbed to that. Well, I have, I have been uh, talking about that with some of the handlers because the dogs that still live with all the handlers that took them d- uh, down there uh, back then. And uh, because they did some kind of a research on the dogs to kind of like see what the effects would have been on the dogs and if they could tell something for humans. But um, he told me that they, they basically nothing came out of those tests, that the dogs didn't really get ill more after 9-11 than they did before so i'm not quite sure what like what the the, the real uh, investigation turned out to be but um i i haven't heard much about that no of the dogs you met and you photographed did you find them any different than any other dog your average dog your household pet well that's always kind of like a tricky question because obviously when you see the dogs they also just like any other dogs when they're relaxed and they're playing. But um, I think for us, it's very important that we know, we have this knowledge that they did that. And by knowing that, it's, a, it's already kind of like inevitable to look at them in a different way. Like you you cannot really block that out. And that makes them different kind of dogs. And then, of course, I as a photographer also look at the dogs uh, from like a kind of uh, photogenic kind of um, perspective so i do have with most of the dogs that i portrayed i would say all of them but like maybe one or two a little less but like i i had like a real connection when i made the portrait because in the end for me it's really about making a a good portrait and uh yeah i would say that all the dogs had like some kind of like they had a moment of concentration so they, they were very still at one point so that may be like something that is different with the average kind of dog well, now, when is this book uh, due out, Retrieved? 
Uh, the book is, uh, is uh, right at this moment, it's on a boat to the United States, uh, like the, the, the edition, and uh, uh, it's officially coming out on the 11th of September, and uh, can be, uh, I, I guess it can already be pre-ordered, as I've seen. So. All right, well, we'll be waiting on the shores for the book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlotte. Okay, you're welcome. Charlotte Dumas is a photographer who splits her time between New York and Amsterdam. Her book on 9-11 rescue dogs is called Retrieved. A lot of us have stories about where we were on September 11, 2001, myself included. I was reporting for this radio station from the Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn Bridge that day. Journalist Jerry Barmash has been talking with veteran news broadcasters here in New York City about their experiences on 9-11. Jerry, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, George. Now, how many people did you interview for this project? Well, I, I, it was a 16-part uh, installment for this uh, website, uh, Fishbowl New York, part of uh, Media Bistro. And I probably interviewed something close to 20, 25 people that uh, I put several in, in the same article. For example, I interviewed several of the TV, uh, the main TV anchors. I put that all in one grouping. I, in several different interviews, I spoke to Chuck Scarborough. Uh, I spoke to Bill Ritter of Channel 7. I spoke to Ernie Anastas of uh, Fox 5 and uh, combined that into, into one article, uh, looking at all of their experiences, uh, putting it together. More work for me, but it was, uh, it was well worth it. Now, was there a common theme among these anchors and reporters that you talked with? Well, the, the one thing, George, that I, that I got out of it was, and, and not just from the anchors, but from everybody, but especially them, uh, they, they're all human. And, and, and not to sound cliche, but they're there for one reason is to communicate, but they also, I got the sense that, you know, they're human. They, they uh, for example, Bill Ritter told me that uh, he couldn't cry on the air. I mean, he wouldn't go that far, you know, like maybe Walter Cronkite did famously with the Kennedy assassination, but he certainly felt it. And he he made the point of telling me when he left the air, maybe one or two in the morning that night, that he was so uh, not only upset, but it was he had so much held in uh, that when he left that night, he, he just completely lost it. For the anchors behind the desk that day on television and on the radio, was it difficult for them to know that they were going to reporters in the field whose lives were in danger as they reported what was going on? It was, and I, I, I remember one anchor that I spoke to, this uh, Spanish anchor who's been at Channel 41 for, for 40, maybe 40 years, Rafael Pineda. He gave me a story that was very emotional, even now when he told me about it 10 years later. Uh, this reporter was on the air as the towers were about to collapse, and he tells me, didn't say it on the air then, but he's telling me that as he's watching this person speaking, he's thinking he's never going to see her again. And it was it, it was chilling to hear these words. And he's saying to me that he, he wishes that he would have, uh, you know, complimented her more about her job, that, you know, he missed that opportunity and he'll never see her again. And, and he's almost in tears as he's speaking to me 10 years later. And a few hours later, the, the woman, the reporter, and the cameraman are, are safe, they're sound, they're alive, and they show up, unbeknownst to anyone at the station, they show up uh, back at the station, and he jumps up and gives her uh, a big hug. And, uh, you know, no one expected it. It's not that, you know, maybe they're injured, they were in a hospital, and they showed up. They, in his mind, they were left for dead, and, and it was very, very powerful, very moving stuff. 
A lot of reporters, of course, were on the ground that day, but there were some reporters in the sky, traffic reporters in particular. Did you talk with any of them? I did. I spoke to Tom Kaminsky, who's been on, on the air as a reporter for uh, WCBS AM for uh, 20 years, and uh, he had another. Every It seems, George, everyone had an interesting perspective. Uh, it, it, for him, of course, very few people were you know, in a helicopter who were there. Uh, he wasn't. He was uh, up the Hudson River. He got word of this, uh, and he got close. He would have actually been off the air at, just as this was happening. He would have been uh, putting the, uh, the helicopter down. He went there, and he, he saw the first plane crash, which, as everybody was noting at that point, was just a plane, maybe even a small plane, but, of course, we know uh, by, that, by later it was not. He got to the battery. He went to the other plane. I'm sorry, he went to the other tower, and he was, as he told me thereafter, he was within a minute, maybe less, of being at the South Tower when the next plane would be hit. I mean, he was that close. He was, and remember, at this point, it was still open airspace uh, before it would com- be, you know, obviously completely shut once the second plane went. All right, Jerry Barmash, where can people read these articles? Uh, if you go to mediabistro.com backslash Fishbowl New York, and uh, you can find it uh, on there. And it's uh, the series is. 9-11 New York Remembers, and you, you, can, uh, you can search for it there. Jerry, thanks so much. Thank you. Jerry Barmash is a New York-based journalist and a regular contributor to WFUV News. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to senior producer Marlene Chin. Have a great weekend.